such a pleasure to be here. Pastor Scott will be back, but he's visiting family in California. But it's so good to be here today. And what's really unique about being here right now is that I was here last year at this time. This is the first sermon of the new year, and I have that distinct privilege to do that. And last year, I also had the first sermon of the new year. Um, But I'm not going to preach on what you think I might preach on. You think new year, resolution time, right? Let's face it, it's January 6th. How many have already broken their resolutions? My hand is up for a reason. Okay. So let's forget about that noise for a minute. And let's talk about something different. Now, I do warn you that I am breaking one of the cardinal tenets of preaching. I don't have three points in a poem today. I do have two points, but I'm going to make up for it by having you turn to a couple of passages of Scripture today. So, but we're not talking about resolutions. In fact, what would you say if I told you in 2019, don't serve the Lord? Did you hear that? thought I heard a pin drop. All right, now before you raise the pitchforks and you get the torches ready to run me out of town, let's turn to our main passage of Scripture today and maybe we'll explain a little bit more and maybe expand on my rather sweeping statement. So if you turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, we're going to start with verse 16. Acts 17, verse 16. I love this passage in Acts It's such a uh, fast-paced, shot-across-the-bow kind of passage. And before we read it, I'm going to open us up in prayer. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. Lord, everything about service this morning is in keeping with the message that you want preached today. And it's not because we coordinated our efforts, Lord. You know that's not true but you are the great coordinator. I pray for each one of us that are sitting here today looking forward to 2019, wondering what will happen, what will become of us, what circumstances may crop up in our lives for good or for what we would deem to be evil. I pray that you would, as we think about what is yet to come, that your spirit would nudge our chins upward to focus upon you instead. You who is the creator, the sovereign, the sustainer of all things can be trusted. And that you work all things out for the good of those who are called according to your gospel, according to your son Jesus Christ. I pray that your word would go forth, that you would accomplish what you have purposed to accomplish with this message today. And may you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so... Acts 17, verse 16, a quick bit of context here. Paul was preaching in the area of Asia Minor, which is modern-day, whereabouts modern-day Turkey, toward the western edge. He gets to Thessalonica, the city. In fact, we have two letters to the church of the Thessalonians, the Christians called Thessalonians. And they're preaching, and people are coming to Christ. Paul particularly picked this city because there was a synagogue there. It was his, very, his custom to go into the synagogue and to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And as a result of his preaching, many were coming to saving faith. In fact, some very prominent Greek men and women. This area was very much heavily influenced by the Greek culture of the day. Very prominent people were coming to Christ. And that made the Jewish people a little jealous. 
presumably because they were trying to convert them to Judaism. Might be because they were prominent. Because people are prominent, we want them in our fold, of course, as the word would the world would have things. And so because they were jealous of what was happening, they tried to run Paul out of town. In fact, they raised up a mob and started a mini-riot, and so they had to leave. So Paul makes his way toward Berea, and we learned about the Berean Christians there who heard the preaching of Paul and diligently searched the scriptures to make sure that what he was saying was true. And people were being saved there. And the Jewish people in Thessalonica heard that this was happening. So, guess what? We start a riot there in Berea, and we try to push Paul out of town. Well, this is all by the providence of God. Because Paul makes his way to the Greek city of Athens. Now, this is where we're going to pick up and read verse 16. Now, when Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Let's stop there for a quick second. A bit more context. We're in Athens now. And Athens is a major city for Greek culture. In fact, we know from Corinth from the book of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. The book of Corinth, the city itself, was a big political center. A lot of political power and a lot of money. It was a very wealthy city because of commerce. So what was politics and commerce to Corinth, art and philosophy was to Athens. This was the home of the philosophers Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. It was the birthplace of the two dominant philosophies of the day, Stoicism and Epicureanism. Stoicism being worshiping many gods and abstaining from anything material. You don't want to feel anything because matter is evil. Epicureans are like, well, when we're dead, we're dead, so what does it matter? Let's indulge right now and forget about it. Two competing philosophies. Every public building in the city of Athens was dedicated to a god. There was a shrine, an altar, a temple, or a statue to almost every single god in the Greek and Roman pantheon. In fact, there was a pagan writer of the time. His name is Petronius. He said that it's easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a man. This is the city that the Lord sent Paul. And he looked around the city and he saw the idols everywhere and he was provoked within himself. Why was he provoked? Because idolatry is a sin. It's an infinite offense to God. Oh, that we would be provoked at the idolatry of our own town. In fact, this town itself had the Areopagus, which originally was called the Hill of Ares. Ares being the Greek god of war. It was co-opted by the Romans, who just changed the name of Ares to Mars. So it became known as Mars Hill. And on this hill was where a council of philosophers would to get together and discuss and debate ideas. And this is what happened. Paul started preaching in Athens, 
And they never heard this philosophy before. And so a bunch of philosophers are thinking, oh, I need to hear this. This is something great. Remember, that's what Athens is all about. Some of them were kind of believing and interested. Other people called him a babbler, which if you look in the Greek, it literally meant seed picker, which meant always just picking a little bit of truth here, a little bit of truth there, and thinks he's a philosopher. They were mocking him. But they dragged him now to this hill to debate philosophy. Then let's pick up in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. And they're all patting themselves in the back. Oh, yes, we are. Thank you very much. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Oh, and then he drops this bomb. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. In the times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Let's stop there for a moment. So Paul gets to Athens. He sees all of this stuff around him. He perceives that there are very religious, superstitious people. And he happens to see the most superstitious of all things, this altar to the unknown God. The catch-all God, right? Just in case we left one out, we want to have an altar there, so we're good, right? He chose, now he was not condoning his worship, their worship. But he was using this as a springboard. He chose what was likely the smallest and the least of all altars. you got to imagine you have altars to Zeus and Jupiter and Mars and all the other gods. They were big and grandiose. And we have this little catch-all altar we'll just shove here in the corner just in case. Paul chose what was likely the least of all altars to talk about the greatest of all beings. He needed to get them to change their minds about who God is. Might we change our minds about God? He talked to them about who he was, that he was the creator. He said, God made the world, everything in it. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. There is no God greater than than him. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He said in verse 25, he gives to mankind life and breath and everything. I think that's your catch-all, everything. And then he talks about God being the controller. Out of these, Adam and Eve, he creates what we now know as the nations of the earth. And he told where these nations, how far they would extend, 
where they would live, and how long their empires would last. We don't like our borders. God put them there. God decided how all of this would happen. God decided that the Roman Empire, the largest empire that had ever existed, most powerful and wealthy that ever existed, would inexplicably fall and crumble under its own weight. It didn't happen because mankind made it happen. God made it to happen. He's reminding them who God actually is. This God that you think is unknown, I'm going to tell you about him. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the sovereign controller. But then he just, like I said before, he dropped that bomb on them. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. I know Paul is tying this back to all these altars, idols, and statues, which were created by human hands. Imagine how these people would have thought. Here we are in the middle of it. Whether you could, it's easier to find a God than it is to find a man, according to the writer's sarcastic quips. God is not served by human hands. You probably thought, wait a second. I made this. I do this. I bring my offerings because God's, plural, require it. You see, a Greek or a Roman God required you to do something, whatever it is, so that one, you'd get their attention, and two, that they would bless you in some way. If you were a farmer, you worshiped the God of the harvest and wine, and you gave offerings of that sort so that he would get your, you would get his attention and he would give you a good harvest. And you think, oh, that's so silly, that's so foolish. There is nothing different about this. Every religion on planet Earth, except for true Christianity, can be summed up with one statement. That you must do something in order to appease the God or gods. That's how you all boil it down. But Paul's message is in contradiction to this philosophy. And for some, it was really bad news. If you feel strong, self-sufficient, morally in sync with God and able to contribute to his work, I've got bad news for you. God is not served by your hands as if he needs anything. In fact, that's the first point. God is not served by the self-sufficient. He's reminding these people that all these altars that you set up, they're pretty looking, but they're doing nothing because God doesn't need your service. He comes to serve. In fact, it kind of leads us to understand this point. We have to answer two questions. And the two questions are, why did Jesus come? And for whom did he come? These are fundamental questions. And you think, well, that's an easy question. Well, don't think of it too easily. Okay, put your Finger here, keep in Acts 7, or 17, and turn over to Mark chapter 10. Jesus spoke very succinctly as to why he was here. Mark 10, and look at verse 45. Because I, I know you're thinking, you said, but we're supposed to serve God, right? That's what we've been taught since Sunday school. When I became a Christian, I went to Sunday school. They said, serve God. Let's look what Jesus says in Mark 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be what? Served, but to serve and to give his life 
as a ransom for many. So here we have what would seem to be a paradox, if you will. On the one hand, we know there are passages of Scripture that say, serve the Lord with gladness. We know in Romans 12 and then in Romans 16, there is this idea that we must be serving God. But here we have Jesus saying, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And then you have Paul, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, saying, God is not served by human hands. Jesus came to serve. But then that opens up the question, for whom did he come? Look over now at John chapter 9. And I'll stop having you flip around after this. John chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7 in the beginning. I had the opportunity a few weeks ago to speak at Project Warm. And we talk about this passage a little more in detail. Jesus didn't come for everybody. So a specific group of people that Jesus actually came for. And Jesus speaks about it right here in this passage. Romans 9, starting with verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus, there has to be a reason why this guy is blind. Somebody's at fault here somewhere. Who sinned? Okay, who did the bad thing? Was it this guy himself and that's why he's blind? Or was it his parents' fault and now the kid is being punished because of the parents' sin? Pretty presumptuous question. Verse 3, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and he made mud with the saliva. He anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Monumental thing here. Jesus healed somebody who was blind at birth. A simple act that Jesus did for this man. The problem was it was on the Sabbath. Jesus did something on the Sabbath. So people saw that this man was healed. He could see now. And all the neighbors were going crazy over This is the guy that's been blind since birth. And so the Jewish Pharisees, the religious elite of the day, heard about this and dragged the man into their council and said, Who healed you? Jesus did. And they were thinking to themselves, he couldn't have done that because it's the Sabbath. You can't work on the Sabbath. Therefore, you can't heal on the Sabbath. He must be a sinner. And the man said, look, this guy healed me. That's all I can tell you. I was blind. Now I can see. So they sent the man away. And then they dragged the poor guy's parents into, into the council. We don't believe this was actually the guy that was born blind. Can you testify if he actually is the man? Well, yeah, he was blind since birth. How did, he get, how did he get his vision back? And the parents, if you, this is in verses uh, 22 and so on, parents said, look, my name's Paul. This is between y'all because I don't want to get in trouble here. I don't know anything. He's an adult. You ask him. They passed the buck. So then you get into verse 24. They dragged the poor guy again. And look at verse 26. They said to him, what did he do to you? They so do the works. What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? It's getting sassy. Do you want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you're his disciple, but we 
Uh, but we know that God spoke through Moses. But as for this man, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, why is this an amazing, why this is an amazing thing? You do not know where he comes from and yet he opened my eyes. Hello, only God can do this. Verse 31, we know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, oh, I love this. You were born in utter sin and you would teach us. And they cast him out. These Pharisees said, how dare you implicate that I'm wrong in my doctrine here. We're not the ones in sin. You're the one that was in sin. You were the one born blind, not us. We see clearly you're wrong. We're not. Get out and stay out. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said, you have seen him, and as he was speaking to you, he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, here it is, I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees heard him, or near him, heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Do you hear that sting going on? These Pharisees thought themselves to be right with God. They had all of it together. They had their doctrine pure. They saw clearly what was going on here. Jesus was a sinner because he did something on the Sabbath. It didn't make a difference if he healed this poor guy. It was a sin. Everyone else is the sinner except for me. And they even challenged Jesus. Are you saying I'm blind too? Now we're speaking spiritually, metaphorically. Are you saying we're blind too, that we're in the darkness? Yeah, you are. Because I came in the world for those who know that they're blind, not people who are convinced they can see. People who are convinced they can see are those are the ones who are self-sufficient in themselves. People who think they've got it all together, that they can contribute to God. That's what these Pharisees were saying. Jesus said something very similar in Luke chapter 5 when he went and spoke to Levi, the tax collector, and had dinner with him. People are like, why is he eating with sinners? Oh, these pure Pharisees. Jesus said, those who are well have no need for a physician. Who is the great physician? Jesus. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Do you see when Paul said that God is not served by human hands was bad news for those who think they are self-sufficient and able. But it's good news to those who know they're lost, know that they can't contribute. They know that they're weak and they're helpless before God. That's why Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You only mourn when you know you have something to mourn over. Jesus said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. People realize they're poor in spirit. They turn to God who can help them. 
Jesus is saying, I am not served by people who think they can serve. I am served by people who come to me and say, I have nothing to offer you, God, whatsoever. Even my prayers to you for forgiveness are still so short of the way that it should be. God, hear my cry. I depend upon you. That song that we just sang this morning, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. That has to be the cry of anyone who claims to serve God. He is not served by the self-sufficient, the strong, the morally capable. He is served by those who depend on him and lean upon him. That's point one. So God is not served by the self-sufficient. Here's point two, if you're taking notes. God is not served by employees. God is not served by employees. Look back at Acts 17 again. Why don't you take a look at how Paul is describing God here? Acts 17, look back at verse 24. So, God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. Okay, so he is the creator. We mentioned that before. He's the creator, he made everything. Now we jump down to verse 25, the second part of verse 25. He's the giver. He gives to all mankind life and breath and what else? Everything, all things. I think it pretty much covers it all. And then verses 26 through 27, God controls the nations, the people. Yes, even those who don't claim to know him whatsoever. He is the sovereign, the controller. Let me ask you something. In what area does God need help? The truth of the matter is, God doesn't need your help. He wants your help, but he doesn't need your help. And this is something where we kind of fall down because I can hear it in your, in your minds right now. Aren't Christians supposed to serve? And I answer that. We talk about it. Yes, Romans 12, 16, Psalms, we, we urge to serve the Lord. However, our mentality of why we serve needs to change. I like to bring it back to building projects I used to do with my kids. Now, as I was a newer pastor, I was acquiring a library of books. Fortunately, pastors like to use their books as trophies in a way, but acquiring books. And the more books you have, the more bookshelves you need, right? And so being a new pastor of a smaller church, I had to put my bookshelves all together myself, which meant we bought those souter things or we go to Ikea, we get those things. You know, you put them together yourself. And that's fine. I'm capable. I can do that. It's my project. I planned it out. I know what it's going to look like when it's done. I know where it's going to go. And I know how I'm going to use it. But I always said, hey, guys, come on over here. Give me a hand. And they came in. And there's a few of them that, that really love to do that. There's others like, yeah, this is great. Take it or leave it. But the ones that were there, they really love it. Like Joseph, for example, my youngest, he loves to do those projects with me. And I'll say, here, take this screwdriver. And I want you to take this screw and put it in this hole and this hole and this hole. And he would just be at it and would go at it. I mean, you could see the intensity in his eyes and he'd make sure everything's right. He said, does this look good? Is this, is this the way it's supposed to be? Yep, it's perfect. Keep going, keep going. Now, the question is, 
does my project rise and fall on my son's effort? No. The project is on me. It's my project. I want him to come work with me. I want him to come help me. But after he's done, I always go behind him. Tighten that up a little bit. Tighten this up. Ooh, this was a little wrong. Let's put this over here. Tighten that up there because it's my project. I'm just happy that he's there with me. I gave him the tools. I told him what to do, gave him specific instructions, and he did it. But the project is on me. That's the way we serve God. Unfortunately, we tend to have the mentality that God needs me to do this. And if I don't do this thing, God's work falls apart. Oh, what a prideful, arrogant way to think. How about take your child to work day? Have anybody participated in a take your child to work day event before? Those are a lot of fun, aren't they? Most of the time you give them stuff to do so they're out of your way. But <laughs> take your child to work day. Does that business rise and fall upon your child's efforts? on take your child to work day? No, not at all. It's on you. But you enjoy them being with you. You want them to see what you do. You see, in this passage that Paul has been, uh, this, this sermon that Paul has been giving to these people, he's reminding them that God is the worker. He's busy. I mean, you think you're busy? Look at what God does. Or we think that after the, uh, on the seventh day of creation, God just, I'm done, all right? I made everything. I'm done. I'm finished. That was just the day. God is constantly at work every single day. He is the sustainer of all things. He's the creator. I think about the things that he's created. And then I think, do I really, does he need my help? He wants my help. He enjoys my help. Does he need my help? Think of light. God invented that. Can you imagine a reality where light does not exist? Yeah. Before creation, light did not exist. God had to invent it. And here I think God needs me. He needs me or it all falls apart. It's not the way that it works. God is not a business owner that depends on employees to keep his business afloat and running. He's not, but that's the mentality that we have sometimes when we go into serving the Lord in our church. And part of it is the way we recruit workers, I think, in our church. Oh, look at these kids in children's ministry. Oh, they need somebody to teach them. Somebody go and teach them. The implication is if no one comes and helps them, that the whole work of God in their life falls completely apart and they're going to be lost and damned to eternal hell. That's the way we come across sometimes. Oh, that's so false. The way that we recruit people to ministry, the elders, when they put out those lists of ministry areas and opportunities, what the elders are saying is, this is where we see God is at work. Would you like to join him there? This is what it's all about. You see, God is served in a way, though, that does not diminish his glory. That's the only way. Because if we think of ourselves as Helping God in his business. And if I don't help God in his business, things fall apart. We're an employee. You don't have to turn there. But in Romans chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, Paul says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. 
And you're saying, well, he's talking about spiritual matters. Absolutely, he is. We do not work for our salvation. That goes back to the first point, that God is not served by the self-sufficient. But it also stands to reason that if I serve God, my motivation to serve God is because he needs my help. I am now an employee, and everything that I do and get from that, I deserve it. It's my wage. Unfortunately, I see this happen all the time. I remember when I started getting involved in um, Southern Baptist Convention circles and other conferences, and they would introduce these new people to serve on committees and stuff like that, these pastors. And the first thing they would do is say, this is Pastor so-and-so. He's the pastor of so-and-so Baptist Church, and he was there for this many years. And while he was there, these many people made professions of faith. These many people got baptized. The church grew from this size to that size. He's amazing. Let's put him in this position. Look what God did through him. We tack that on at the end. Look what God did through him to try to spiritualize it all. Who got the glory in that situation? That man. And it happens in all of our circles, and we do it too. It creeps into our way of thinking. Look, God must be served. Make no doubt about that. Let there be no doubt about that. God must be served, but he must be served in a way that does not diminish his glory. You know, I, I love what he says here in, in Acts 17. He says in, in verse 27 that they should seek God in the hopes they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he actually is not far from each one of us. Before that... He gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You know how God is served in a way that does not diminish his glory? You serve him because you know you need him. God is the giver of all things. So many times as a pastor, I've had people come to my office and they say a similar thing. I just don't feel God whatever that means. I just don't feel God. I don't feel close to God. And nine times out of 10, those people are not in their Bibles and they're not serving anywhere in the church. You will never feel closer to God than when you're serving God. And not because you're serving God out of duty, because he needs me and it all falls apart if he doesn't have me there, but out of delight because he has what I need. He's the giver of all things. Do you have a need today? Jesus said, you know, I've come to serve, not to be served. What does that mean? Well, if he's here to serve, that means we need something. Well, what's our greatest need in this world? It's not to have a better marriage. That's a good need. It's an important need. It's not our greatest need. Greatest need is not to have a fat bank account. That's... I'm not saying that's wrong, but that's not our greatest need. It's not to be better parents or to manage our time better or to make us feel good about ourselves and boost our self-esteem. Our greatest need is for someone to come and die for us in our place to take the wrath of God that was at one point focused directly on me and now on to someone else. That's what Jesus did. He came to take your place. And only those who know that come to terms with who God is, who you are in the grand scheme of things, can come to God in faith. 
But then it says he gives mankind all things. You have needs? Serve the Lord. Not because you need to get something from him, but because you need him. You need to be with him. You'll never feel closer to God than when you serve him. I know that when I'm here, I have to teach. God has given me gifts. He's given us all gifts. And that's how he wants us to join him in his work. He's given me gifts of, of, of teaching and, and other such things. And that's where God wants me to be, to, to join him and, and serve him in that area. When I'm doing that, I never feel closer to the Lord. I never feel like I'm really just listening to the Lord. He's, he's blessing my life. He's growing me. He's making me more like Christ than when I serve him. You know, when I feel like I'm farther away from the Lord, when I sit on the couch and I don't do anything. We need God. We need him desperately. He is the giver and he's willing to give us those things, but we have to do it in the right way, folks. We have to come to him in dependence. Those gifts are given to you so you can join him in his work. Now, back to the, uh, the Ikea and the, and the solder bookshelf example before. There were I, the, the things that would take a lot more wrenching and turning on some of those screws, some of those tighter areas. I give it to my stronger kids to do it. I give them the right tool for the right job. And that was their job. I give the hammer to the one that would knock those little tiny brads down to put the backing on the favor. And it doesn't take much effort. You just do that. I give him the tool for that. I wouldn't expect him to knock those little tiny brads into the back of the bookshelf with a screwdriver. I want the person with the hammer to do that. God has given you all gifts. That's where he wants you to serve him in those areas. And it could be in any number, one, any number of ministries that God has for you. And you say, well, I, I don't know what my ministry areas. I don't know what my gifts are. Well, here's a really good way to figure it out. Just start doing something. You know, it's like I tell, tell teenagers that are always struggling with, I don't know what I'm supposed to do for the rest of my life. You know, that's such a massive question anyway. I don't know what I'm supposed to do for the rest of my life, but neither am I. But sometimes it's better to know what you don't want to do, right? You just process elimination. You tick things off. You get involved. You get working. And you don't like it. It just, it does not work with you. you. When you do it, it doesn't work out well. It ends up in a disaster or whatever. You, okay, tick that off. That's not what I'm supposed to be doing. But for those of you that are here and you don't know what gifts the Lord has given you, how are you going to know unless you get involved and start doing something? Get involved. Look at that list of ministry opportunities and say, well, let me start here and try this out for a while. Do you not think that the Lord would reveal that to you, what you're supposed to be doing? Absolutely. He wants you with him. The joy of having my children build a bookshelf is just because they're there with me doing something. Not because I needed their help in putting something together. I'm fully capable of doing that on my own. But I want to be there with them. And I teach them about myself I have a relationship with them. I have good gospel conversations while we do it. This is how God wants you. Working alongside of him. Joining him in his work. Not because you expect something out of God. Oh, that's the mentality of employer-employee relationship. I did X, therefore I expect Y from God. That charismatic movement has really infected that way of thinking. I've done this, this, and this. So God, lay it on me. It's my due. I've heard too many Christians say, God is obligated to do this. 
really? You know really what God is obligated to do? You don't really want to know what God is obligated to do. It's a free gift of grace that he gives. And we serve him because I need him. You want to be right with the Lord and close to the Lord? Join him in his work somewhere. Find out where he is. The same goes for giving. Tithes and offerings. I'm not going to preach about giving. Tithes and offerings. Why do we give? Not because God needs our money. We really think God needs our money? I mean, God is the creator and possessor of heaven and earth and everything in it. What does God need with my few bucks? What does giving do? Giving show, shows to God that I'm dependent upon him. I'm relying upon him, not upon this money in my, in my pocket or in my bank account. What did Jesus say? You cannot serve both God and mammon or money. What did he mean by that? What does mammon do? What does serving money do? You serve money not because you think money is a god and you're bowing down to it, genuflexing or doing whatever it is that you do. Of course, that would be foolish. You're serving money because you like what it gets you. I acquire more money, so I have more power to get and do what I want. You can't serve God with that mentality, Jesus is saying. You cannot serve God with the hope that he'll give you something in return. Now, will he? Absolutely. Untold blessings. And it may not be exactly what you were thinking or hoping. And there might be some rough road along the way. But the goal is to make you like his son. You do it while you're working with him. So, depending upon the Lord is the key to how we serve the Lord in a way that does not diminish his glory. 1 Peter 4.11 says, Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter says, you're serving God? Good, but do it in his strength. Don't come to God and say, I'm going to serve you because look what I can do. You come to God and say, I serve you because one, I need you. And you're at work, you're a working God, therefore I'm going to work right alongside of you. And number two, I'm going to come and serve you, but I've got nothing to offer. <laughs> Help me. Every single pastor worth his salt, when they cross this, this stage to get to the pulpit, says in his mind, God help me. Speak through me. Do this, please, because I am inadequate and weak. Yeah, I studied, but this is your word. Every children's ministry worker says the same thing when they walk into those rooms. God help me. These kids need to know about you. You're there doing something amazing in their life. Let me join with you in this. You do it through me. Every person who works in the office, every person who works at Project Warm and the other ministries, the pin ministry that goes on here, says the same thing. Because if we're going to serve, we need to serve because we need him and because we depend on him. And then Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I went to a very fundamentalist Christian school growing up, and that's where we stopped. We didn't read the rest of that. And so there was a lot of fear and trembling i got to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. 
We used to sing songs about working and the constant kind of work that we do. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war. What does that even mean? With the cross of Jesus going on before. We would sing hymns. I guess I am doing a poem, aren't I? We would sing these hymns, bringing in the sheaves. Have you ever heard bringing in the sheaves? Some of those folks that would sing the old hymns, bringing in the sheaves. I used to think it was bringing in the sheeps, but it's really bringing in the sheaves about harvest and working for God. We would sing choruses, we'll work till Jesus comes, we'll work. Till Jesus comes, we'll work, and we'll be gathered home. And I'd always add, for more work. Because that was the mentality of it all. Work, do, do. God requires, work your salvation with fear and trembling. But we forget the second part of verse 13. For it is God who works in you to both will, desire, and to work. For his good pleasure. It is God. You work out your salvation. You work out your faith. Serve the Lord. But know that it is God that's at work in you to both want to do it and to give you the ability and the strength to do it. They go hand in hand. We cannot presume once that we can do any of this on our own. But we step out in faith because God is everything. He is not served by human hands as though he needs anything. I almost see Paul kind of mockingly say that. So let's bring it back to the introduction again. I said, what if I told you in 2019, don't serve the Lord? And I heard the pin drop, right? But now that we've heard this passage from Acts 17 and several others today, Maybe we should expand it a bit and say how not to serve God in 2019. Don't serve God this year with your strength, with your self-sufficiency, with your solo bootstraps. Pull up your own bootstraps. Make it happen, Kevin. Don't serve God with the mentality of an employer-employee relationship. Like it all rests in your hands. That's a surefire way for God to take you out of the picture. Or to make all of your stuff, just all of your efforts in vain and fall apart. You know, God at any moment could take me off this planet earth and replace me with someone else. And the kingdom would be just fine. But he wants me to join him. That's how we serve in 2019, with gladness, with dependence, with our weakness. Do you feel weak? You coming off a rocky 2018, uncertain what 2019 brings. You feel uncertain. You feel weak. You feel powerless. Praise God for you. You're in the best position imaginable to serve the Lord. Otherwise, what Paul said is bad news. God is not served by human hands as though he needs anything. So let us serve the Lord this year with gladness. Come before him with dependence, realizing that you're nothing before him. Trust in the work of his son, not in your own work. That's why Jesus came and did what he did, folks. When we talk about the gospel, we go immediately to the cross and the resurrection. That's so important. It really is. But we forget about the life of Jesus Christ. He lived this life perfectly because you and I can't. Otherwise, why would Jesus need to come anyway? 
We can't meet the law's demands. We cannot keep God's laws perfectly. The Bible says if we break one area of the law, we've broken it all. Jesus came because we can't. He lived it perfectly. He didn't break the law whatsoever. And then when he died, he did it for us in our place. An innocent man on the cross, willingly taking the law breaking upon himself. And then rose again to newness of life. So now you can serve God in 2019 with new life. Trusting in his strength and his work. You want to be close to the Lord? You want to feel close to the Lord? You want to draw closer to Christ? Serve him. I can't do it. Good. That's how God wants it. Because he wants you. He doesn't want your work. Let's pray. Father, in the blessed and amazing name of Jesus, we come before you. I want to thank you for the good news and the bad news. Lord, the gospel is good news, but it's also bad news. I pray for those of us that are here today that still think that they're good enough. They can contribute. They've got it together. They know it. They believe it. They're good. Break them, Lord. I pray that you break them as quickly but as gently as possible so that they would see that they, you are not a God who is served by human hands as though you need anything. Help them to realize that your son came to those who are blind, to those who mourn, to those who are poor in their spirit. Open up their eyes to who you are, your glory. But just when all hope is lost, let them see the beauty of Christ that they may believe. Grant them the gift of faith. And for those of us who have been believers for a while maybe, whether it's a week or a decade, or however long. Help us to serve you this, this year, but to do it in the right way. In a way that does not diminish your glory or give the glory to ourselves. Help us to serve you in utter dependence, but to serve you because we need you. And you're the God who works, so let us be with you, God. I pray that you would open up our hearts and minds today. May you receive all of the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.